The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle. Rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio. I'm glad that you're all joining us today because our guest, um, I, I've just got this warm place in my heart for him and his family and his dad um, and what they mean to environmental activists like myself. Our guest today is Ken Brower and his dad, David Brower, was the first executive director of the Sierra Club and in years as they went by, he also founded organizations that were all in the environmental world so familiar with, like the League of Conservation Voters, Friends of the Earth, and the Earth Island Institute. Familiar names to all of us. Ken has written a book that uh, that talks about his dad from a variety of perspectives. He's interviewed uh, several environmental activists and talked to them about his dad's influence on their work. But I'm so excited to hear a son's perspective. I mean, Ken got to grow up in a household where all this new environmental activism was being born and i'm excited to hear your perspective on your dad and his legacy so welcome to go green radio ken well thank you thanks for giving me the uh, opportunity to talk about him well and your book is is uh very exciting i'm hoping that all of our listeners will get out and uh, grab a copy after they listen to your interview tell us really quickly where we can get a hold of the book well, the book is is in bookstores. It's um, it comes out. I guess the pub date is uh, is in a couple of weeks, and uh, uh, so the book should be in bookstores in certainly in the Bay Area where I live and um and elsewhere. Well, that's awesome, and it's called The Wilderness Within. I think I saw it out on Amazon as well. So for all you bookies out there, this is going to be something you'll want on your summer reading list. Well, can your father, David Brower, is considered one of the United States preeminent environmentalists. Tell us what his first significant achievement in that area was. Talk to us about that. The first, uh, the first triumph he had was, was really shortly after he became the executive director of the Sierra Club in 1952. He, um, he led the campaign against dams in Dinosaur National Monument. Um, uh, there were a couple of dams that were going to flood this national monument, and he sort of orchestrated the resistance to this uh this damming project and he he really it, it it's historians have said this was the first real victory of citizens anywhere in the United States against a big government project it was the first time citizens got together and stopped something that wasn't good and and uh it was really the first um it was the first of the modern environmental campaigns it, and and it, my father really sort of um designed it 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 was a multi-faceted uh, approach to to campaigning for for the environment. He had a he made a book uh, with Wallace Stegner's uh, uh, as author. He 
he supported a film against the thing. He did grassroots organizing around the Southwest and out west against these dams. He um, he wrote articles in the Sierra Club Bulletin about it. He took people down the river. One of his um, one of his uh, strengths was this idea that we have to build a constituency for these places. The these this river and this uh, national monument were not well known and. And you have to get people caring about it. So one of the things he did was get Sierra Club river trips running down through this canyon that was going to be flooded. So the place had a constituency. You had people who cared about it, you know, who people were willing to, to write their congressmen about it. And he was successful, and it really uh, sort of launched his career. Uh, uh, he went on after that to fight, uh, fight dams in Grand Canyon and win there, too. He led, sort of led the coalition that stopped uh, two dams that would have flooded um, Grand Canyon. Wow. So that was his beginning. Well, and people have to remember back in the early 50s, we were just coming out of this era where big government was a friend in a sense. I mean, we had the the Great Society and that pulled us out of the Depression and people that were alive then um, – you know, had just come out of World War II and we were feeling high on life and there was a lot of building going on in terms of, you know, suburban America, you know, and its genesis and people were feeling really good about, uh, the, the state of the union, basically. And so for somebody to say, wait a second, not everything that they come up with, you know, in Washington is a good idea was novel then. It, now that's sort of our, almost our knee jerk reaction. If it comes out of Washington, I don't know. I'm immediately suspicious but that wasn't the case then and uh, you know your dad when we speak about world war ii and 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 what we had come through as a nation your dad was in the military how do you think his military service shaped the work of his time um i, I think i think your history is just right on about about how we came out of the war um uh, we had this tremendous war. We came out with um, with tremendous confidence um, in what America could do, and um, and it was the uh, the post war years were the were the sort of the age of the bulldozer, and there was tremendous <laughs> uh, tremendous uh, growth in our suburbs, as you say, and and uh, there was a sort of a belief, there was a sort of a, a um, patriotism for this kind of technology, this kind of uh, land altering, so that so that people didn't. This conservation idea really hadn't hadn't begun yet. So you're right. It was it was his was one of the first voices to say um, to say no. Um, let's slow this down. This is going too fast. Um, his his military experience. I think um, I think having survived that war, he it, I, I definitely think it tough, toughened him up. I think it gave him it gave him some. Uh, he, he wasn't completely unmilitary in his approach to the, his campaigns. He, mm-hmm. so, uh, so it, I think it toughened him up. Uh, and I think it also, uh, I think having survived something like that, you, you, you want to do something with your life. And I think that, I'm sure that was an influence too. Mm-hmm. Uh, no doubt about it. I mean, you know, the, the military changes you, even if it's not in a time of war. Um, if nothing else, it gives you confidence. Um, oftentimes we find military members, whether they're officers or enlisted, and your dad was an officer, being given, uh, you know, a level of responsibility, uh, budget, uh, the, the welfare of other individuals far beyond their years <laughs> when it comes to their, you know, their peers in maybe corporate America or, or what have you. And, uh, and your dad sure did display a lot of leadership. And I can't imagine that some of that didn't come from, from his military service. Now you mentioned 
that he was involved with uh, the Grand Canyon. Um, and I know that he also was involved with protecting the California Redwoods. You know, for folks in my generation, I mean, we just consider those places untouchable. Why did they, those areas need protection? What was going on then? Um, the, those areas needed it then, and they still need it. Um, I, I think the, the idea that these places are in, untouchable is probably um, a little bit of denial. Um, mm-hmm. uh, my, one of my father's old arguments was, was we, the environmentalists, uh, the, 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 ex, the extractive interests, in, interest, the corporations, the dam builders, the loggers, they only have to win once, um, and it's over with. We have to win. We conservationists have to win every time. Mm-hmm. And uh, because the uh, we may have beat them back on this one campaign, but the dam site is, is still there. The, the place, the narrows in the canyon where you can build a dam is still there. The forest is still there, even if you beat the, the loggers back temporarily. Um, once they win, of course, the place is gone. So um, all these places uh, are, are, are at risk. We, national parks ha- have been threatened before. Um, uh, for example, one of the, the, the battles that really led to the formation of the Sierra Club was the battle to, to keep dams out of Hetch Hetchy in Yosemite. It was this terrible precedent where in 1913 an act was passed that allowed the city of San Francisco to, to dam uh, uh, and flood an area of Yosemite National Park. This, this is very shortly after the, the whole park idea was launched, and for someone like my father or like John Muir, who was his predecessor at at the Sierra Club, this was just a horrible precedent. So uh, these places are not inviolate forever. They have to be defended forever. Um, and uh, sort of an alert and, and engaged citizenry is, is always going to be important to keep these places the way they should be. Mm-hmm. What do you think would have happened to some of these places? Um, you know, I mean, Yosemite is one of my favorite places on earth. In fact, you know, uh, they tell you when you're going through childbirth, and I have three children, uh, you know, think of your happy place, and that's where you go when you're, you know, giving birth and, and doing all this, uh, this breathing and all of that. And Yosemite was my happy place that got me through, you know, that, that experience. What do you think would have happened to places like that if your father hadn't acted on their behalf? If my father and people like him and his, his army had, had not done these things, these places would have been gone. And, and again, they will be gone if we don't continue to watch out for them. There's, the, it's a mistake to think that, that, that a park boundary is, is, uh, protects a place forever. I mean, Yosemite is a good example. The, it's, it's been necessary through the whole 100-year history of this park to, um, to, to guard it against uh, overdevelopment. It's been a big problem in Yosemite Valley. And um, uh, there's, a, there's an impulse of people to build too much infrastructure in parks. There was a huge campaign that my father fought in the 50s. Uh, it was called Mission 66, and the idea was to build, make, make parks more comfortable for people and, and, and build a lot more infrastructure in them. And this is the kind of thing that needs to be resisted. The, uh, the, for people of our persuasion, my father's and mine, you, you, you have to – wilderness is the important thing. We don't want to make – we don't want to make these places too accessible because we destroy what we're trying to protect. So, um, so throughout the decades of Yosemite Park, they, it's had to be defended against ill-advised um, uh, overdevelopment by the Park Service and, and others. Mm-hmm. 
what do you consider, Ken, your dad's greatest accomplishment in this movement to be? What What is really your highlight for him? It's funny. It's one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot in doing this book and, um, and in talking to the people who my interviewees in this book who've who have given me this very sort of multifaceted uh, view of who my father was, um, is, is, you know, he, 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 he built the Sierra Club into the most powerful environmental organization in the United States. It went from 7,000 when he became executive director to 77,000 in the time he was there, and, then, and it's grown vastly larger now. He, he started Friends of the Earth, which is now in, in 60 countries around the world. He, he started the Earth Island Institute, which is is now in has projects in 50 countries around the world uh so so that was impressive and he he invented a whole genre of books the large exhibit format picture books that were the celebrated wild places and nature around the world and sort of uh, in the in the 60s and 70s introduced a lot of people to this idea of the importance of natural uh, beauty and ecosystems so all those things were important i've begun to think though that that his real his real impact was was one on one or one on auditorium if he was uh, addressing a bunch of students or or one on three closing a bar down which he liked to do he one of his things was to after the lecture to go with students to the bar and be there until 2 in the morning it was, <laughs> it was his it was his infectious enthusiasm with individual people i think that really has 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 been his legacy because a lot of these people uh were evangelized by my father to, to join this movement. A lot of the leaders uh, in the environmental movement, they started this way. They started as students in the back of an auditorium who heard my father's sermon, as he called it, because mm-hmm. for him, environmentalism was a religion. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they heard the sermon, and when he was good, I've heard him when he was good, he was very good. And, and he, he, he was eloquent, he was charismatic, and he was sort of an ecstatic on these subjects. He and people came down at the end of the day, and they said, "Sign me up." And and in this book, I've done a number of the people on my interviewees were these people who came down, who heard him, and came down and signed up. And and I and I really think uh, I really sort of think that's you know the, the organizations were great, and the book series he did were great, and the lobbying he did in Washington was great. But I just think this this handing on the torch to young people was really maybe his, his, his gift. His ripple effect through other human beings. What a wonderful legacy. Well said, Ken. We've got to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, much more with Ken Brower. We'll be talking about some of the organizations that his dad founded and what they did and what they're doing. More after this. Don't go away. More Go Green Radio. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you ready to change your relationships, your business, your body, and your life? You'll want to tune in to Transformation Talk Radio with host Tony Litster. It's an inspiring hour of conversation, special guests, and wisdom that has made Tony an expert with personal life experience. His down-to-earth style will give you the keys to unlock your greatest potential. Listen for Transformation Talk Radio live every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Listening can truly change your life. 
Come back to your senses. Imagine a radio show that will help you recover your common sense. Host Leah Brenda Smith is a health and wellness specialist who will explain techniques designed to help you recover from the stress of your life. It's all about how you respond to your thoughts. A little bit of self-awareness can go a long way in helping you to relax and enjoy your life. Tune in to Come Back to Your Senses Radio, live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. If you're just joining us, our guest today is Ken Brower. He's written a book about his dad, David Brower, who is kind of considered a pioneer uh, amongst uh, U.S. environmental activists. He was the first executive director of the Sierra Club. And as we were talking about right before the break, Ken, I asked him what his dad's greatest accomplishment was, and, and it was such an eloquent answer. It was basically his dad's ability to influence others and to excite others to protect the environment and, and the nature around us. And I just felt like that was such a great perspective. You know, Ken, besides the Sierra Club, and your dad did have such a huge impact on modernizing the Sierra Club and energizing it into, uh, you know, a real functioning nonprofit organization in terms of its administration and its membership ballooned during his tenure. But he formed several other groups that we referred to in the last segment. I'd love for you to tell us about those organizations and what their individual missions were. Yes, the... Um the Sierra Club was, when he started, was really just a um, pretty much a hiking fraternity. Um, he made it into the, the, the strongest uh, environmental outfit in the, in the United States, which it still is, really. And and uh, but it wasn't. Um, not everybody wanted wanted the Sierra Club to go that way. Mm-hmm. And one of the the stories of his life was that he, he he had to overcome a lot of resistance and inertia in these organizations to try to wrench them around in the direction he wanted. And and in the Sierra Club, finally, after uh, 17 years as executive director, he he had tweaked enough, he had annoyed enough board members that they kicked him out. <laughs> and um, he, he, one of the things about him was that he was always he was always a little more radical than anybody around him. They, he went too fast for a lot of the people on his board, and and this finally got him kicked out of the Sierra Club um, more than anything. He 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 wouldn't. He finally got tired of the. Um, 
the uh, the chains on him that, that, that the organization put. So he jumped out and he would form a new organization. That's what he did with Friends of the Earth. And one of the things that Sierra Club didn't want him to do was to be global. They said we're a California outfit, uh, a number of them said, or, or now we're a, a national outfit. But my father said these problems are global problems. We, the Sierra Club has to address them globally. As soon as they kicked him out, he did that. He started mm-hmm. Friends of the Earth, which my mother named, and and um, and the idea was that this that we can't we have to address these problems globally because they're global problems. And mm-hmm. and Friends of the Earth uh, set out to do that. Um, its its province was the whole Earth, and and then he uh, he had 16 years running that outfit, and the same thing happened. He 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 he. He went too fast for the organization. He he couldn't. He thought it was too important what what he was up to, to to be constrained by people who wanted him to go slow, mm-hmm. and uh, and so he was kicked out of that organization and uh, formed his last one, which he um, which uh, outlived him, and that was Earth Island. And Earth Island was really designed uh, as a result of these bad experiences with, with bureaucracy and these larger organizations. He. He really believed in, in young people. He believed in, in initiative. He believed in giving young people the torch and letting them go with it, not, not directing them a lot and not hindering them. And mm-hmm. so I, uh, I, I think the, 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 the sort of uh, plan for Earth Island was to avoid this kind of bureaucracy that, that big organizations, even big environmental organizations, begin to generate with success. The Sierra mm-hmm. Club success has been wonderful, but it also – Burdened them with a bureaucracy and with a lot of uh, institutional inertia, and and he really wanted to to be free of that, and that's what uh, that's what Earth Island is. It's a it's a series of projects, uh, sort of uh, autonomous projects that Earth Island serves as umbrella for and or incubator for, and 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 really says to each of these leaders of these groups uh, go off and, and succeed, and mm-hmm. uh, that was the uh, sort of the scheme of his last the last phase of his um, organization building. Mm-hmm. Now, your book is in many ways a collection of stories and memories of your father and his work. I'd love for you to share with our listeners some of your favorite stories and um, some of the people who recount them in the book. Geez, there's a lot of them. Um, uh, one of the stories is about um, one of the interviewees is, is Jerry Mander, who designed the ads that, as much as anything, kept dams out of the Grand Canyon. It was, as Part of my dad's campaign, and, and uh, it was fun just to to uh, I knew Jerry back then, but it was fun to sort of relive that history and remember how it went. And and uh, these ads were full page ads that uh, ran in the New York Times, and they were in addition to the, my my dad's normal campaign, which had a, were involved books and films and grassroots organizing and and lobbying. He was. When I was a kid, he was often back, you know, he was away most of the time in Washington, uh, testifying before Congress against these various ill-advised dams. But these ads were, um, these ads were so effective. They were well-written and, and uh, just going through it with Jerry Mander again, uh, being reminded by Jerry, uh, the ad writer, of how sort of a perfectionist my father was. Uh, my father would, would be unhappy with a sentence in the ad and it would call Jerry two and three in the morning, and say, uh, we've got to change the sentence. And, and Jerry would say, Dave, um, this copy is at the printer in New York. It's going to be printed later this morning. I can't. And he said, well, go, we'll go call them. Call the, the, the composition room. 
tell him to change it. He said, Dave, I can't do that. And this happened again and again. Uh, so, so I was amused at, uh, you know, this kind of perfectionism and this kind of uh, uh, was part of his package. And it was one of the reasons his, his product was so good. It's one of the reasons those ads were so good. Um, so that's one of the stories I remember. Uh, other stories that come out is this bar closing again. It's, I hadn't realized what a theme of, through all these interviews it would be, but, but he was a man of tremendous physical energy. I guess he needed to wind down at the end of the day. And so he, he often did that. And he, and nobody, I've, t- I've talked to a number of the interviewees, nobody could keep up with him drinking. He, <laughs> he drank everybody under the table. He, uh, you know, young college students could not keep up. I couldn't keep up uh, when I, when I worked for him in New York, I, I tried once, uh, I failed. Um, so, uh, uh, it was, um, it was part of the deal. It was, it was, uh, it was a lot of the evangelizing happened at bars. A lot of the young people who were convinced were convinced in, the, in this one on two, one on three, one on bar room conversation of my father's. Um, so that was another of the stories that came out. Um, uh, his, his, uh, his, Dave Foreman, who was one of the founders of, of Earth First, um, an outfit even more radical than my father's outfits um, speaks about a kind of a purity of his motives. He, uh, Foreman himself, says that he was a bit of a misanthrope and that he didn't ever expect much of people. Uh, my father, by contrast, was, was did expect a lot of people. Was all was got disappointed that way, but it, but but also that kind of enthusiasm and, and confidence that young people and, and others around him could could succeed in this movement really empowered a lot of people. And uh, that was one of the themes that, that sort of came up again and again in these interviews I did. Did you find out anything that you were unaware of? I mean, did anybody tell you anything that you didn't know about your dad? Um, it's interesting. I knew a little, I had the, you know, I had the, the, the basic outlines of him, of course, because I grew up with him. But the interesting thing about this, um, this technique I've, I've never used before, but just uh, 20 interviews, long interviews with people about him, is that each person came at him with a slightly different, uh, from a slightly different angle. And um, their own personal experience of him was always a little different. So, so in the end, it was almost like a, um, you know, a novel with multiple narrators. Uh, it, it was everybody coming from a different angle, exposing a slightly different facet of him, which, which for me resulted in a very sort of, a well-rounded figure that hadn't quite been there for me because he was so persuasive and because he, he drafted me out of my freshman year of college to do books for him. He would draft everybody uh, into this movement. It was sort of important for me to get away. And so after about five years of, of doing these large books for him, I realized, you know, uh, he, he, he is too persuasive. I need to get an identity of my own going. So I branched off as a freelance writer and, and, and I wasn't as, uh, I didn't follow his career as closely as I had when I was working with him. And that's another thing. I, I, the um, number of things he did that came out of these interviews, the number of pl- places he went uh, trying to spread this message. I had forgotten how many times he'd been to Lake Baikal trying to get this wonderful freshwater lake in, in Siberia, uh, in the Soviet Far East, preserved, the, you know, the biggest body of freshwater in the world, freshwater mm-hmm. seals, just a wonderful place. How many times he'd been there? How many times he'd been... Uh, uh, all the conferences he went to, um, uh, it, it really was a go- global effort of, of his everywhere. And I'd forgotten the range, the geographical range that he had, um, and uh, and just the testimony of so many people influenced. I'd, I'd, uh, you know, I guess I I hadn't quite 
Oh, I, I knew he was larger than life, but I didn't quite know how much larger until I, and so I really sat down with these people and listened to what they had to say. Mm-hmm. And are there any other stories that come to mind um, that really either intrigued you or tickled your fancy as you were interviewing these folks? Um, gosh, uh, there were. I mean, uh, Amory Levins was one of the interviewees, the sort of the soft energy guru, the, the founder of Rocky Mountain Institute, and um, and uh, an outfit that now has ninety people working for him on on smart technology as opposed to the stupid technology that we've been <laughs> using so long. And he he was interesting to me. On one of his messages was the way that. Um, the way that my father empowered people, even uh, a great physicist, you know, a great thinker like Amory, he was a, a young Don at Oxford uh, doing uh, doing studies there when when my father sort of stole him from academia and 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 uh, and signed him up and he he had some photographs on a book on whales and my father came one day and said, well, you're going to do this book and I want you to lay it out and and Amory said, well, I've never I've never written a book and and uh, and uh, I've never laid out a book. And he said, well, you, it's about time you did, my father said. And <laughs> this, is, this is what he said to me, actually, a couple years before he said it to Amory. I, I'm a freshman in Cal at Berkeley, and, and he, he steals me away and says, we have to do this book on the big Cirque Coast. And the, the poet who was supposed to do the editing didn't quite get it. Uh, let's see if you can do it. And, and, and it turned out I could do it. So um, these are the um, – the, uh, this kind of uh, – uh, another person who t- told a similar story is Peter Hayes, who's who's in Berkeley, California, and in Australia, and in Korea, in offices of his Nautilus Institute, who began in the same way. He, uh, my father, he tells this wonderful story. My father, they're in Nairobi, and it's at the uh, it's at the first um, I it's at the beginning of the IUCN uh, formation, of, and he he's out there under the stars and and. And my, he can't even remember what my father said, but he says, all I remember is it was under these blazing stars, southern, southern hemisphere constellations, and, and my father saying to him, I know you can, we, we need you. We, you have to do this. You, you're, you, can, you can help us with this cause. And how that Im, empowered him. And, um, and uh, uh, Dave Phillips of Earth Island Institute tells a very similar story. He's a young college student in Colorado, and he wants to work for the movement. And my father asks him, what, uh, well, what have you been studying uh, when, he, when he comes and asks for a job? And he says, well, I've been doing Ebert's ground squirrel, and I've been uh, uh, doing some stuff on, um, uh, spent a month in, in the tropics doing whales. And my father said, well, we need that. We, we've got to have what you, you're doing. And, and Philip says, you just can't imagine what it means to have somebody of, of Brower's eminence tell, tell you that when you're a young mm-hmm. person. He says, I, I don't see that happening from, from other mentors or gurus, uh, that kind of uh, empowerment of young people. That's what a tremendous testament, you know, to, to anyone, but uh, to your dad, that's that's beautiful. Well, we've got to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, more with Ken Brower, and we'll be talking about his dad, David Brower. Don't go away, folks. Much more Go Green Radio right after this. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. 
Family caregivers face some tough challenges every day in caring for a partner, parent, child, sibling, friend, neighbor, or even coworker. You are there to provide the care that these people need after everyone else has gone home. Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley will provide you with a social networking experience. You'll hear from experts and others who are experiencing the same things, and together you will promote a common cause. Tune in to Family Caregivers Unite, live every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. If you happen to just be joining us, you can catch right up. It's not a problem. We're talking to Ken Brower, and he's written a book about his dad, David Brower. The book is called The Wilderness Within. Uh, you can Google that, find it on Amazon, and uh, and pick it up. It's it's a brand new book that he's penned about his father, who was the first executive director of the Sierra Club, and in many ways the father of modern environmental activism. It's amazing uh, some of the stories and some of the successes that uh, David Brower achieved in a time long before the internet, long before social media campaigns, and uh, we'll talk about. Uh, you know, the way that he uh, reached out and the mechanisms that he used in just a little bit. But, Ken, we've talked a lot about your dad's successes and his legacy. Were there any moments or any times in his career as an environmentalist that he failed to accomplish a major goal? Yes. You know, the given the forces arrayed against uh, uh, conservationists, the entrenched political and, and corporate Power that's 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 resisting him. There's lots of defeats, and and in fact, um, probably more failures than than triumphs. And one of the the things uh, uh, environmentalists or conservationists has to be is tough, and he has to be able to resi- be resilient and be able to bounce back from many failures. And uh, in fact, my father's one of the quotes he borrowed from Tom Hayden was, um, "All I've done in my career is is uh, slow the rate at which things get worse." Hmm. And uh, and it's uh, that's a little more pessimistic than he normally sounded, but 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 there's lots of defeats for an environmentalist because uh, because he's resisting really the flow of history, you know the and and so it's tough. There was one really great tragedy in his in his career, and um and it really uh, uh, shaped his his approach to environmentalism, and it 
it's, it was poignant because it came right after his big successes. Uh, in, the, in the early 50s, he, he made, uh, in the 60s, he made a name for himself fighting dams, and he succeeded. But no sooner had he really had he defeated this dam in Dinosaur National Monument than he lost the fight to, to stop the, the Glen Canyon Dam, which he considered the greatest failure of his career and which he took responsibility for. He, he felt that he had not been at a crucial moment when he was in Congress uh, leading the coalition against um, Glen Canyon D- Dam, that he, that he, if he thought faster and if he had, if he'd been a little braver, um, he could have stopped that dam. And to the end of his days, even as a very old man, he, if he started talking about this, sometimes he would start to cry. He mm-hmm. felt this was his big failure. And he, but the, the thing it did is it, it, it actually empowered him in his fight, later fight against the Grand Canyon dams. And it, informed his belief about compromise. He, he, he did not believe in compromise uh, more than anything as a result of that defeat. He felt the environmentalist's job is never to compromise his position. He, the environmentalist should fight as hard as he can for what he believes in and let the politicians do the compromising when it happens. This is not a, uh, a philosophy that's widespread anymore There's, in the environmental movement. There's lots of uh, deal-making now. Uh, it's not something that he he ever wanted to do as a result of losing Glen Canyon, which, which we saw as kids uh, because he, in this effort to build a constituency for this canyon, he, he took us down uh, as sub-teens and as teens down this river, his kids and others, and it was the most beautiful country in the world. It's now lost under Lake Powell. I, I've now grown up, and I'm a writer. I've traveled the world. I've never seen a place as beautiful as these canyons. They're gone. Mm-hmm. Um, so they... they um, they really, uh, they really steeled him for the fight that the fights that came, and and made him made him determine never to to compromise again, never to uh, never not to fight his hardest for these places. Mm-hmm. How did that stealing of his will sit with his colleagues? It um, it caused him trouble everywhere from more timid people in the movement, especially on his boards. Um, back at the Sierra Club, it's hard to believe now, but, but back at the Sierra Club, there was once a policy uh, uh, imposed on him because he was so outspoken that he could not criticize public officials. He could not impugn the motives of public officials. This was the kind of um, drag that, that institutional culture put on him. And it's funny, he, was a, he always had an organization, but he really wasn't an organization man, and he really... Um, he really fretted at the, at the restraints that, that, that the organizations put on him. Mm-hmm. And um, so he got this all the time. He got this idea that, oh, can't we compromise? The, w- one, of his, one of the things that got him kicked out of the Sierra Club was his unwillingness to compromise with PG&E on building a, a Diablo Canyon uh, reactor. Mm-hmm. He, he, the, the, the PG&E was very clever at coming to the Sierra Club and saying, why, why must we always fight? Can't we just sit down and reason together and and come up with a better, uh, another site so that we, for our reactor, that, that doesn't harm this place that they were originally going to build in the Pomo Dunes. Well, my father said, no, for one thing, these guys are shrewder than we are. They'll, you know, in a, in a collaboration between corporations and environmentalists, the, the corporation is always going to eat your lunch. They're, 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 they've got better lawyers, they're, they're, uh, they're more ruthless, and we can't, 
we can't uh, we can't do this kind of deal. And that r- really was one of the things. His resistance to the Sierra Club position on Diablo Canyon, he, he did not want a reactor built there, um, was what one of the big things that got him kicked out of the Sierra Club. So this this tendency of his to be uh, to be tough and to be more radical and not to compromise always got him in trouble because mm-hmm. most people want to go slower and most people don't want to take those leaps. What what do you see, Ken? I mean, when you look back and you see what your dad accomplished and, and really, you know, the wave of his own personality and will and, and what he accomplished back then, what do you see going forward as the future of environmentalism and the environmental movement? Um, it's, it's, um, it's, it's the, it's, it's the area we have to succeed in if, if anything is going to go right. It was one of my father's um, sayings. Um, there'll be no business. There'll be no culture. There'll be no social justice. Uh, there'll be no art. Um, there'll be no anything on a dead planet. So the one thing we absolutely have to get right is, is getting this right. And then these other things, if they're going to happen, will follow. But we have to we have to keep a living planet under us. Um, I don't think I don't think the the public at large realizes how how we're stressing this planet. Um, it's not just uh, doomsaying. It's not just Chicken Little by by environmentalists. Living a living planet really is at stake at the rate we're going. I mean, it it could not be clearer to to anyone who's been a student of of the rate at which we are transforming the face of the earth. Mm-hmm. And so this is this is the cause of causes in a way, and I think he was right on that. I mean, he, he he doesn't have any objection from me. So we have to succeed on environmentalism, and there's huge forces ahead of us. Uh, we're in the middle of this uh, sort of a new age. We, I talked earlier about the bulldozer age. We're we're now in this this uh, we're now enamored again of, of technology in a big way. We're we're hearing a lot of uh, arguments about bioengineering or, or geoengineering to mm-hmm. to try to stop global warming. People still haven't quite grasp that technology is not going to save us from this fix we're in. Yet, mm-hmm. yet this lesson hasn't gotten through. Um, people still think we can sort of uh, uh, clever our way out of uh, what's facing us. And um, it's not going to work that way. Um, so, so it's a hugely important movement, and, and, and it's facing ever greater uh, odds. Uh, uh, the, the things are getting getting worse at a terrible rate and and um so it's a, so we have to succeed with this movement and um and i think uh we need to we need to do it with more fervor in this movement and and i do think we need um more of that kind of um my father's kind of fervor driving this uh this movement which is, is there anybody that- doing that today i mean do you see anybody taking up his mantle um or, or are we still kind of looking for that David Brower of the 21st century? I think we have a number of people who are doing uh, this kind of work. Um, one of the people that my father believed in was Dave Foreman of, of, of um, Earth First, who has who is, had the same kind of um, combativeness. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm thinking uh, uh, Bill McKibben today is doing very similar work in, in that, that he's also – a preacher of the ideas as much as anything. He's, he's organizing, but he's also getting the, this idea of, of, uh, of the importance of the earth as a, as a living system out there. Um, so there are people doing that. I don't think we have the, I think we need uh, uh, more of these charismatic leaders. I don't think, uh, I don't think we have enough of them. I think what's, 
what's happening to the environmental movement today is, is again, a sort of, it's a victim of its own success. They've, it's gotten so big, some of these organizations, that, they've, that, they, that they need managers. Uh, in my father's day, in the 50s, there weren't managers. There were just firebrand uh, activists, and, and they were who, the people who ran these organizations in the very early days, 50s and 60s. They, they succeeded. They got big. They got large memberships, and they needed managers because they, they were so big. So you began to see environmental organizations with MBAs running them, and you began to see uh, boards of directors of these organizations with lots of corporate types on them because, because fundraising became important. There were more... There were more uh, people drinking at the, at the trough. There was less money to go around. So fundraising has become a huge part of what these organizations do. Never happened back then. It, uh, it's probably uh, inevitable, and, and this just happens with successful organizations. But, but, but there's, a lot of been, there's a lot of kind of purity of, of, oh, a purity of, of motivation that's not there as much as it was. And, and many people have lamented this. These, these organizations are a little bit like corporations now. And, and, mm-hmm. um, and so uh, it seems to me if, we, if there was some way, uh, in spite of the inevitability of the, uh, better management with large organizations, some way to get some of that fire in the gut back, um, uh, I think that would be great. I think it's going to be necessary because, um, because we have so far to go uh, to turn around uh, the, the way we're going. Well said. I couldn't agree with you more. We've got to take a quick break, but folks, when we come back, much more with Ken Brower, author of The Wilderness Within. Check it out. You can Google it during the commercial break, but we'll be right back with more Go Green Radio right after this. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. Our guest today is Ken Brower, 
author of a new book called The Wilderness Within. Recommend it highly. Get on out there and uh, Google it. You'll find it on Amazon. You can grab it there. There are some bookstores carrying it as well. But it's a book about his father, David Brower. Uh, we've mentioned before, but if you're just joining us, um, he was the first executive director of the Sierra Club and so much more. David Brower is truly a pioneer in uh, the U.S.'s environmental movement. Um, he did things back in the 50s that a lot of organizations are still struggling to do, even with the power of the Internet and their ability to, to engage in social media to reach the general public and engage them on important environmental protection issues. He did it without all that technology, and uh, it takes a force almost bigger than life to do that. And Ken, we're so glad that you joined us today on Go Green Radio to talk about your dad. Um, did your dad ever talk about his legacy? Did he ever talk about uh, what he hoped he'd be remembered for? Um, not so much. He, um, is, he, he was an interesting guy. He, he, he wasn't very interested in his own psyche. And uh, he was he was more interested in he was turned outward really uh, and completely devoted his life to this issue so uh he didn't talk much about his legacy he wanted uh implicitly he did and just in just the amount of energy he spent in trying to recruit others like him or trying to to convey the message to other people like him so so i would think he 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 wanted he wanted self starters uh and people with the vision to keep going. And that, I think, was probably behind his founding of Earth Island Institute, which really is an outfit designed to empower young people and new leaders to um, continue this fight. If he were with us today, what do you think would be his kind of priority list, his triage of the biggest environmental challenges facing us today? I mean, um, you know, on my Twitter feed, I'm constantly tweeting about articles that come up in mainstream media about water and energy and food and, you know, a variety of issues. But what do you think and what do you think your dad would say are the top issues facing us in environmentalism today? You know, I ask myself this question all the time, um, and I, I often find myself wishing, gosh, I wish he, we, where is he that we really need him now, you know? Uh, yeah. um, he says so much stuff, and I would love to hear what he said about so many of these things, because he was a very smart guy, and he had a very, um, he had a very good take on, on these things. Um, one of the things he would say is everything's important. You know, one, of the, one of his gifts was to, to see that, that the environmental movement involves everything. He, he, for him, it was sort of the, the prism through which he looked at the whole universe. Um, mm-hmm. because everything, almost everything has, um, has a bearing on environment. He, he was one of the first to see that population, that, that military, um, expansion, that, that, uh, that, uh, nucle- nuclear prolifer- uh, pr- proliferation, that, um, that social justice, that all these things had environmental components to them. So on the one hand, he was sort of narrow in that all he cared about was environment. But on the other hand, he was very broad because environment was everything for, for him. Mm-hmm. And so he would say, I mean, he would be very worried about the disparity in wealth that's developing in this country. He'd, he'd be worried about the sort of mindless uh, uh, re-investment uh, uh, in technology that we've gotten, or uh, this view of technology is sort of solving our problems, which they never have. Mm-hmm. Um, technology really only creates problems for the earth. Um, uh, with a few exceptions, we've, we, we're getting some technology that's helping, but um, 
he'd be worried about uh, food problems. He'd be worried about water. He'd he'd definitely be worried about global warming. Um, He was in the 50s. He was one of the first to point out where we were headed with global warming. He he had an interesting. He he borrowed from economics uh, this notion of the the law of the minimum, and and it was what is uh, what is going to fail first? What's the the minimum thing? What's the what's the weak link in the chain in 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 this system that sustains us that's going to go first? And he would even joke with it. I remember once sitting with him in traffic uh, a traffic jam, and uh, he said maybe it's going to be gridlock. You know maybe. Traffic around. He was joking, but he said maybe traffic around the world is going to freeze up and it'll never move again. This was uh, this was his idea. Of where is it going to Where is it going to come from? I think you know, likely say it looks like global warming right now because that's what's on our minds and it's so grave, such a grave problem with so many repercussions for uh, life on this planet. But the thing I think he would say is remember that we've we've only known about global warming or we've only thought about it hard for for at the most 80 years uh, we never the idea never occurred to us before that so now we're thinking about it but guaranteed i think he would say there's something else in the pipeline c- coming toward us that we haven't even seen yet the way we treat this planet uh the way we abuse the the uh the network of life that sustains us the the ecosystems around the world there are other uh Ogres about to raise their heads. Uh, who knows what they are? We don't know what they are, but 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 they're there for sure. Uh, global warming looks like a promising candidate for the to, to sort of end the show. But what else is there uh, resulting from the way we're uh, uh, abusing this system that sustains us? What else is sort of uh, in the pipeline headed our way? Yeah, it's it's hard to know. And one of the things that I have always found so inspiring about your dad is his future focus and his commitment to future generations and and how that seemed to to really drive him i mean as his child you were his future generation did that resonate with you as a kid that you know my dad's fighting for for my generation i mean did that did that dawn on you that it was that you and your peers were a big part of his motivation. I think it certainly did, and especially it was by the time I reached my teens and and um, and really started listening. Um, yes, and it, and it and it, that imparted a sense of obligation to to work in this cause too. Um, um, and uh, you know, it is it, it's it's one of the things we've forgotten in this Western civilization that we almost no concern for future generations. We we've somehow developed this ethic. If, it's, if you can call it an ethic, that, that we get to consume it all in this generation, that any resources that are there, we should take them now. There's almost no thought of future generations in the way we are, our economy is organized. Um, uh, there's, no, um, there's no allowance given for the future. Um, and, and it's not the way other cultures work. One of my experiences has been to work a lot in, in Subsistent cultures in the Pacific and other places. There's always an idea of future generations. There's there's uh, there's the idea that we owe future generations. Um, mm-hmm. One of the powers of our Western civilization is is if you is is what happens if you just deny if you allow yourself to use it all now. Of course you 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 get develop a lot of wealth right now. Um, mm-hmm. If you completely um, ignore the the needs of future generations, you and use it up all now. It, it, it's a it's an exciting ride, but it's not what's going to keep life on this planet going. And and mm-hmm. uh, and so uh, I do think he was uh, not just his own kids, but all kids. He, he was 
he was sort of amazing with young people, even as a very old man. Some, uh, you know, he had tremendous energy, but he began to slow down. And he sometimes would look his age. He'd look 85. He'd go to a session of young people, and, and uh, college students or, or high school students, and he'd come back, and it was absolutely, I've never seen anything like this. It was, he was transformed. He looked like he was 50. Um, wow. He, 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 I've never heard of a phenomenon like this. I've never quite seen it, but it was like, he, he came to life again, and he just, you know, he, he, he fed off the, the youth of these people and was encouraged by it and by their, by their enthusiasm and by their hope. And it absolutely man. animated him. And, of course, it, it worked both ways because he fed them in that same way. Mm-hmm. So, so, yes, he was very, he, he was thinking about the future all the time. I just love that, Ken, and I, I'm so glad that we were able to have you on Go Green Radio today to share that legacy and share that fresh perspective um, on your dad. It's invigorating. I'm excited, and um, thank you for being with us. Folks, we're going to be back same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio, and until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.